0: Hi, everybody. It's great to be here again tonight as we continue our series called The Attributes of God and What Difference Do They Make? You know, I was thinking nine weeks ago, our lives kind of got maybe not turned upside down, but definitely turned on its ear a little bit. Everything got shut down. But God has been so faithful to us at Green Tree because we have not missed a scheduled opportunity. We haven't missed a a, a Sunday or Wednesday to bring forth God's word. You know, of course, it's going to be so great when we finally get to do this in the flesh again, side by side, listening to His Word, worshiping, and fellowshipping. But praise God for this opportunity to still gather around His Word right now, just as we are now. So every day we get closer to that day when we're going to be together, but it's still great to do this now. You know, whether we hear God's Word through um, Zoom or face to face or live stream like we're doing now, if it's God's Word, it's it's true, and it's powerful, regardless of how we consume it. So praise him for that. If you're like most Americans, you're probably spending more time right where you are now, watching television or on or your personal electronic device, more so now than you did last year. I know my family's watching more TV than they usually do. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm getting a kick from the, the commercials from the advertisers that tell us that their, their priority is their employees' health and their customers' health and, and still maintaining a high level of customer service. And, and I believe them. But what cracks me up are the pizza commercials that assure us that the pizzas come out of the oven untouched by human hands to the box. So am I to assume that prior to COVID-19, pizza makers reached into the 500 degree oven with their bare hands, took the pizza and put it in the box? is like not touching the pizza with their bare hands a COVID-19 innovation? Because if it is, my humble recommendation is if they really care about the health of their employees, they'll continue this practice even when this is all over. And I also appreciate the celebrities that are giving us tips, to, the tips of what we can do while we're at home. And I don't have a tip for you, just a little bit of food for thought. Remember folks, calories count during the quarantine. If your physical activity level has decreased since you started staying home, but you 're still eating the same amount of food or more, just be ready for the clothes that you could comfortably fit into prior to the quarantine to be a little bit snug coming out of it. Just keep that in, just keep that in mind. yeah, we definitely have more time on our hands, and I pray that God would help us to use it in healthy and constructive ways. thinking um, as we as we talk about time, time is an interesting factor in our lives Um, it's very indiscriminate meaning regardless of who we are regardless of our personal differences we're all impacted by time we're all limited in time we're bound in time and we're changed by time limited in time in the sense that regardless of who we are what we do for a living what we look like any of our personal differences we only have seven days a week 24 hours a day and 365 days throughout the year now, our priorities and our preferences and our financial situations will dictate how we use that time, but nothing is going to give us more or less of that time. We're also bound in time. We can't do anything besides be in the minute that we're in, in the moment that we're in. We can't go back in time and make any changes in our past. All we can do about our past is learn from it and, and remember it. And those things are, are important factors. They're, they're nice things to do. I don't want to minimize that. But we can't change our past. Neither can we move into the future and do anything about that. The only thing we can do about the future is make the best decisions that we can now so that we can have the best future that we can imagine or that we strive for. We can plan for the future, but even our planning doesn't mean that it's going to come to fruition. Um, the Bible tells us that. Proverbs sixteen nine says that the, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And Jesus reinforces this in the parable that he gives us in Luke 12. He tells us of a, of a rich man who was so, so prosperous that he didn't even know what to do with his stuff. And he said, you know what I'll do? I'm going to tear down my small barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones. And I'm going to put all my stuff in it, and that's going to be my retirement plan. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, relax. Take it easy. Eat, drink, Be merry. And God intervenes and says, fool, he calls him a fool, fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you. Tonight, you're going to die. Then that retirement plan that you've got in mind, who's going to get your stuff? So a part of being a good steward is planning for the future. We have to do that. But again, our planning doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen. And then finally, we are changed by time. From the moment that we're conceived, we begin to change. If God blesses us with average health, we are going to be born. We're going to grow in stature, physically and intellectually. We're going to reach a peak, and especially physically, we're going to start to decline. Now, there's some things that we can do to offset that that the, the ravages of time a little bit. But if we live long enough, we're going to experience degeneration. Now, I know, folks, that this isn't the most uplifting. Introduction to a message you've ever heard, you know, but the truth is we are impacted by time But the greater reality and this is a great thing Is that we serve a god who is not impacted by time. He transcends time God is eternal And that's the the quality of god that i'd like to focus on tonight. God is eternal. But first let's pray Dear lord father. We thank you for allowing us to be right here where we are all together engaged in your word. Father, though we are apart, we're all together, Father, because your word is universal, Father, for those that would hear it. We pray, God, that you would open our ears, Father, that we would hear this, that we would open our hearts to your message, Father, that we would be changed by this, God, that this just wouldn't be an occasion where we're just listening to words, Lord, but this would stick to our spiritual bones. And through this, you would mold us and form us and help us to be the people you'd have us to be. In Jesus' name, we pray and we thank you, amen. Yeah, so God is eternal. And eternal means having no beginning or end. So God being eternal has no point of origin. There's no place or time in which he derived. Um, Neither is there a place where he will be no more or even changed. God is not impacted by time. It's not a factor to him at all. Um, Psalms 90 verse 4 tells us, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. ...or like a watch in the night. Second Peter 3.8 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. God can't have too much time or too little time. He can't be early. He can't be late. Now, he certainly understands the significance of time in our existence... ...because he designed it into our existence... He sympathizes with our time-induced pressures, just like he sympathizes with anything else that we experience. But he himself is not constrained by time. God's eternal quality is probably the quality that's most difficult for us to comprehend because it's so far beyond anything that we can understand. Not to say that the known qualities of God are easy for us to, to, to nail down, And we'll never be able to grasp the magnitude of all that God is. But compared to his eternal quality, we can understand some of his other qualities a little bit more. In fact, he tells us to emulate those qualities. He is merciful. He tells us to be merciful. He is holy. He tells us to be holy. He is long-suffering. He tells us to be patient. Now, we struggle at living these things out all the time. But at least we have a reference point through his word and through the life of christ We know what those qualities look like in action But not so much his eternal quality I I like analogies. I like metaphors Um, They help me to sometimes understand things that are otherwise confusing and when i'm speaking I like to use analogies and metaphors because I think they help me to express myself a little bit more Um, The audience may sometimes disagree, but I like them anyway So I still do it but There is no analogy or metaphor or simile or anything like that that's going to better help us understand God's eternal internality. If I were to say our understanding the eternal nature of God would be like gathering all the grains of sand from all the beaches on the planet and pouring them into a thimble, that's an amazing picture, but it doesn't do the trick, not at all. Because there's a number of grains of sand We don't know what that number is. God does. But there is a number. If it was possible that we could gather all that sand and put it in one place and we got enough people together and we gave them enough time, theoretically, they could count the grains of sand. It would start with the first grain of sand and it would end with that last grain. And then, of course, in the middle would be a whole lot of grains of sand, but there's a first and there's a last. And that's the problem. Because with eternity... There is no first, there is no last. There's nothing to count. Anything that can be measured, anything that that can be quantified, anything that can be counted can help us to understand what can't be measured, quantified, or counted. The best that an analogy can do is to help us understand how much of God's eternality we don't understand. Time is a created thing. From the perspective of time, There's three phases of it. There's before time, and this is when there was nothing but God. And the Bible tells us something about that. In Psalms 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He was here before anything else, before time. Now, since God has eternally existed, there's no amount of time between the eternal before time in the point in which time became a thing. God and Jesus didn't have a conversation that included a calendar or a watch. God didn't say, hey, Jesus, next month, we're going to do that creation thing. Creation simply came to be at the timeless point in which God simply spoke. So that's before time. And then we have end time. And that's the onset of creation from from when creation came to be to the very minute in which time will end and this is the only phase within eternity in which it can be counted and we witnessed time coming into existence very early in the creation process genesis 1 3 reads and god said let there be light and there was light and god saw that the light was good and god separated the light from the darkness god called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. There's the number, the first day. So at that point, time is on the clock, so to speak. Day, night, evening, and morning are defined periods of time. They, they frame the activities of our lives. Generally, we wake up in the morning. We're active during the day, whether we're at work or at school, or you know, things may be a little bit different now, but you know what I'm saying. In the evening, we start to wind down. We get involved in activities like this or, you know, we watch some TV, read some books, just kind of chilling a little bit. And then we go to sleep at night and then we repeat the cycle the next day. Well, One day that cycle is going to stop, whether by our physical death or the point in which Christ returns. And Jesus's return will mark the end of creation as we know it. His return will mark the beginning of time. And at this point, no one knows when that's going to happen. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verses 35 and 36, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So God knows when that after time is going to come. Other than that, no one else. Now, I'd like to spend a few minutes Just talking about three truths relative to god's eternal quality that that might comfort us by widening our understanding of god a little bit more Um, it may challenge us or any other way that the spirit might stimulate our walk with the lord the first point i'd like to make is by being eternal god has a singular perspective of time by being eternal god has a singular perspective of time god sees all of eternity Including what we consider to be the past the present and the future all at the same time And this this is an interesting point relative to our salvation God doesn't look at eternity all before him Sees that at some point during the end time we accept jesus And so then he comes back and before time and accepts us as his children if he did that, if that was the process, that would be completely incongruent with his sovereignty. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. And it tells us that really God does everything before we do. He's not impacted by time. He impacts time. It says he chose in us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God knows exactly when during the end time we're going to accept Jesus because he predestined us before time to choose him at that exact moment that we do it in time. It's all at the same time. We see God's plan unfolding at the exact moment in which it's happening. But he sees every aspect of his plan. Get this. Before it happens, as it happens, and after it happened, all at the same time. All at once. And it all occurs according to his perfect will. You know where we we get a really good example of this? In, In the justification and God's sanctification process of us. Those who God has predestined, those who God has adopted as his children, he sees with us right now with him in heaven. He's not imagining it. It's not a hologram. He sees us seated with Christ. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Listen to how it gives us an already but not yet picture of us believers in heaven. It reads, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Did you catch the past tense nature of verse 6? It says, he has raised us, he's already done it, raised us up and has already seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's done already, it's a done deal. But then in verse seven, the future tense, so that in the coming ages, they're on their way. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Folks, one day we're gonna see what God has in store for those of us that love him. We can't see it right now, but God sees us enjoying it already. Right now, God sees us justified and perfected, seated with Christ, as he's perfecting us, making us more Christ-like. And it's not some kind of, like, science fiction, time warp, parallel universe thing. It's not like our spirits are in heaven and the rest of our body is here on, on, on earth. What it is is like a lot of things with God. It's inexplainable. I don't know how it works, but nonetheless, we are simultaneously justified and seated with Christ in heaven, and we're also being sanctified here on earth, being more Christ-like. While I was working on this lesson, um, a couple of things came to mind that I wanted to kind of save for the end, because part of the, the, the title is, what difference do these qualities make? So I had quite a few, but I I, I narrowed it down to a few that I'm going to share at the end, but I'm going to go rogue and I want to share one of them right now because it aligns so much with what we're talking about right now. One of the differences that God's eternal nature should make in our lives is it should comfort us. It should comfort us. I mentioned that God sees all eternity at the same time, but we see his plan only at the moment in which it happens. I'm sure you've seen murals where when you're standing back, it's one picture. But when you get close to it, did my head get really big when I did that? I don't need my head getting bigger. But when you get really close to it, you see that the mural is made up of a whole bunch of little pictures. Well, God sees everything He sees the bigger picture of his plan all the time. We see it minute by minute, but those minutes of our experiences are the little pictures within his bigger plan. And God takes those pictures. He takes those minutes. He takes our experiences and weaves them together with the experiences of other people to make his perfect plan, make his perfect picture. So we don't see the end result all the time. We usually don't see the end result at all. And sometimes we'll go through things and we'll wonder how is God using this for his glory? How is this for my good? While we're in the midst of it, while we're standing real close to that mural, we can't see the bigger picture, but we can be comforted in the fact that God sees the big picture. And if God is involved, and he's always involved, the outcome is good. So no matter what it looks like to us, God will be glorified, and it will be for our good. So we can be comforted that God is an eternal God. So I want to go back to the The points about God being eternal as he is eternal. Also, his word is eternal. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What God says is right and true has always been right and true. And that will never change. God's commands for righteous living didn't begin with the creation of man. Now, it's true. He wrote out his commands during the end time to man. But the holiness on which those commands are based is eternal. So what God deems sinful is always sinful. Now, before time, there was no defiance to his word. So there, there, were, there were no issues it was only because it was only God. And then after time, we're going to be perfected. And everything in heaven works according to God's will. So there will be no defiance to his word and his will there either. So no issues. So then the problem comes with end time right now In every lesson that was taught through this semester in all the messages that pastor kyle taught and the two messages that david taught The two that I taught somewhere in all of those lessons It was always mentioned that regardless of the world's opinion of to god's word his standards don't change No matter how the world behaves no matter what the world thinks God's word will not change. It is eternal So as God is eternal, so is his word eternal. The third point I'd like to make is as God is eternal, so is his grace and his judgment eternal. Now, before moving forward in this point, I want to speak specifically to anyone that may be watching right now who hasn't accepted Christ. And I'm asking you just for these next few minutes to pay close attention. Now, hopefully you've been paying close attention up to this point and you'll continue to do so. But this is really important. This is what my wife would say, the nitty-gritty. This is where the rubber meets the road, folks. Because when you think of everything that we can do in our lives, nothing, nothing is more significant than whether or not we accept Christ. Because nothing else has eternal consequences, but only that. So, now, this message isn't designed to scare anyone. God's word isn't designed to scare anybody, but it is designed to evoke a fear of God. And the fear of the Lord is a proper response to who he is, and it's respecting and submitting to him. And in that respecting him, it's understanding that God is perfectly holy and just. And since he's perfectly holy and just, he has to judge and punish sin. And folks, on our own, we're enemies of God. There's no works or, or de- there's nothing we can do to change that on our own. And yes, being under God's judgment is a scary, fearful thing. But, and this is when it even gets where it's, where it's better. That's, that's some grave information I just said. But what overshadows that is God provide the way, not a way, the way for us to be reconciled with him. So with all that in mind, I want to read Matthew 20, 25 verses 31 through 46. It gives us an amazing picture of the eternal manifestation of God's grace and his judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? but the righteous into eternal life the moment we die folks at that very moment nothing that we ever did on earth is going to matter it won't matter how much money we had it won't matter what our social status was it won't matter how many friends we had both real or virtual the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not we accepted christ now at the time of jesus's return that we just read about in that portion Everyone will have been or will be appointed their eternal destinations, heaven or hell. And we see this in verses 32 and 33, where Jesus separates the people in front of them. Those on the right are going to heaven, and those on the left are headed to hell. The Bible tells us, as we're talking about eternity, the Bible tells us that both of those places are eternal, there's no time in those places. Um, Specifically in verse 46, it tells us that because it says the cursed will be going to eternal punishment, but the righteous will be going to eternal life. So let's just look at that a little bit closer. We're we're familiar with day and night marking the passage of time. The sun comes up. That's the beginning of the day. Sun goes down. That's the the end of the day. And then again, the cycle continues. Well, in heaven, there's no night, and in hell, there's no day. The Bible tells us that there's no, he- no, no night in heaven in Revelation 21:23, It reads, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, and the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There's no night in heaven, but on the other hand, there's no day in hell. Jesus in Matthew eight, while complimenting the faith of a centurion tells him in verses 11 and 12, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus says the sons of the kingdom, he's talking specifically to unbelieving Jews. But the fate of anybody who rejects them is the same. They're going to be cast into outer darkness. In the lesson David taught, probably about at this point, maybe seven, eight weeks ago, was the first lesson that he taught. He did a fantastic job explaining that the biblical descriptions of hell should not be taken literally. But what we need to take to heart is the message that those descriptions give us. And that message is hell is a horrible, horrible place. Just as heaven is blissful because of the presence of God, hell is awful because of the absence of God. And as long as people have breath, there's an opportunity for them to accept Christ. But once they're dead, that's it. There's no chance they're going to be cast into that outer darkness. We don't know the specifics of exactly what outer darkness means, but we know it's continually awful. You know, an existence marked by continual weeping and, in some translations, say groaning can't be good. And gnashing of the teeth means grinding or clenching your teeth in pain or anguish. That can't be good, and it's going to be forever. The word day is often symbolic for um, newness or hope or a fresh start or good things that will occur in due time. Now in hell, whether darkness means that it's just horrible or it's horrible and there's an absence of, of light, we, we don't know. But what we do know, it's continual. It's not like a prison sentence. You know, everybody in prison is going to get out, regardless of how heinous the crime was that got them there, and regardless of how long the sentence is. People are going to leave prison, whether they walk out by their own power or they're carried out in a body bag. Physically, they're getting out. That's not the case with hell. In hell, there is no parole. There's no probation. There's no halfway houses. There's no reduced sentences. Once in hell, they are in hell, and God is never going to extend his hand of mercy to anybody there. There, There's no end to their brutal existence. Regardless of anything that anybody does or anything that anybody possesses in life who pass without Christ, they're going to experience God's judgment manifested in abject horror. Jesus gives us a glimpse of that truth in a parable called The Rich Man and Lazarus. It's in Luke 16, verse 19. And to paraphrase that parable, the rich man enjoys the best that life has to offer. And Lazarus is an outcast, unhealthy beggar, begging for scraps from the rich man's table. They both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell, where none of his riches help bring him any comfort at all. There's, there's there's no change to what he's experience, what he 's going to experience it 's never going to be figuratively day in hell it's just going to be constant torture if you haven't accepted Christ and you plan to do so but you 're putting it off because you want to accomplish something in life you want to make you know enough money or you want to establish yourself self in business or a family or you want to clean yourself up first of all you can 't clean yourself up enough but If you're you're delaying this on purpose, I want to draw your attention back to that first parable that I mentioned at the beginning of the rich man who was going to die that night. Now, God told him he was going to die. In most cases, we don't get that kind of heads up. It just happens. If If this coronavirus pandemic isn't clear writing on the wall of how unpredictable life can be, I don't know what can be. Just think about what we were doing nine weeks ago. And then all of a sudden, things just got shut down. I don't know how many of you know somebody who is um, suffering with coronavirus. I'm sure you may know somebody who knows somebody. I know we have some some members of our church who are going through it, and we pray for them. But they didn't plan that. It happened. the, The next second is not guaranteed to us. And God is not going to accept a person's intention to accept Christ, but they simply ran out of time as an excuse. We either accept him or we don't. And the consequences are eternal. When we read in verse 32 of Mark 25, we see that Jesus separates the people before him to his right and to his left. And I know when I read that, I have a tendency of looking at two vast oceans of people before God. I mean, before Jesus, who is God. And these, these, these oceans are made up of kind of humanoid figures, ambiguous, faceless, nameless, and I shouldn't do that, and if you do that, you, you shouldn't either. We have to understand that everybody on both sides of Jesus has a name, they have a face, they have a history, they have a story, and on both sides are people that the world would consider good people. They were great providers for their families, they were great friends, they worked hard, they contributed to their community. But then also on both sides were people who were hard to love, people who were rough around the edges, people who seemed to struggle with the easy aspects of life. But those qualities is not what got them on their respective sides. It's whether or not they accepted Jesus. Now, both sides will call Jesus Lord. And we see that in that in that verse, I mean, in that, that portion. Those on the right call him Lord in verse 37. Those on the left call him Lord in 44. The difference is, Those on the right had called him Lord before seeing him face to face. They realized earlier in life by faith that life wasn't about them, but it was about him. So when they call him Lord, it's with immense joy, and they will enjoy his grace forever. So much different for the people on the left, because they do call him Lord, but they call him Lord at the moment they realize they should have done this earlier in life. At this point, it's too late. And they call him Lord, but they do it in sheer terror. And they're going to suffer his judgment for forever. God's grace and his judgment are eternal. There's no changes. God's desire is that all people would spend eternity with him. And we don't have to look hard for that truth. It's found in the most popular verse in the Bible, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. But have eternal life. Now, God prepared us to spend eternity with everybody. He he prepared all of us to spend eternity with him by building into all of us a very important characteristic immortality. Our bodies are going to die, but our souls are built to last forever. Now, while God has created us to be immortal, he hasn't made us eternal. The the Bible mentions eternal life dozens of times, 44 times in the English Standard Version, but never does it say that we are eternal. And we shouldn't be surprised by that considering the definition of eternity, having no beginning or no end. Well, we have a beginning, so that disqualifies us from being eternal, but I have to point this out. And this is a, a point that Pastor Kyle has made several times over the last few months. We have always been in God's heart and mind his foreknowledge of us has been forever. He wasn't just there being God, and then at some timeless point in eternity said, oh yeah, that person. We have always been with him. We have been with him since he was God. And when was he God? He's always been God. So God knew, knew every single detail of every single thing all at one point. He didn't stumble upon anything. So this is amazing to think that God saw Adam... The first human and the last person who will ever be born on this planet at the same time. He sees them right now. That's amazing. And when was that? Since forever ago. That's, that's amazing. So no, we aren't eternal, but we are everlasting. And we're going to spend after time somewhere. If we accepted Christ, we're going to be with the Lord. If not, we won't be with the Lord. So how should we respond to the truth that we serve the eternal God? I had five ways. I only have time for four. I mentioned one already, and that's that we should be comforted. God sees everything all at the same time. He's transcendent of time, but we see his plan only as it unfolds. Though we don't know what lies ahead, God does, and it's good. So we should be comforted in that. Second, we should be sobered that we serve an eternal God. The overwhelming popular belief is that everybody is the central figure in the story of their lives. And everybody else ranges from co-stars to supporting characters to background extras. But the truth is our lives or our stories are wrapped around the story of Christ. And and that story has been unfolding for eternity. So it's absurd for anybody, for even a second, to think that other people and other things and situations should revolve around them when forever it's always been about the Lord. And even though we know that as Christians, sometimes we can kind of forget that. You know, um, we can be kind of selfish, I mean selfish, hopefully not continually, but at least episodically. I'll put it generously and say that sometimes we can be pretty self-centered but we're in the eternal story of jesus and he is the king it's not the other way around so who are we to complain when things don't work out the way that we think that they should like, who are we to, to counsel god in that in, in how the story that he perfectly orchestrated and and, per, and perfectly guides from eternity to eternity should play out that's not our place it's nobody's place so looking at life from an eternal perspective, understanding that we fit in the story of Christ should be sobering when we're tempted to think everything is about us. Third, we should be inspired as a result of our eternal God. Just think about this. We are in the story of our Lord. Or more specifically, we are on the right side Of the story of the gospel those of us who have accepted christ everybody's in the story you know so but those of us who have accepted the gospel are blessed by it those of us well those who have rejected it are are, are judged by it the people that jesus separates to his right and to his left aren't there because of anything that they did jesus points out their acts but the Bible is clear that we aren't accepted by God by our works. It's only by the grace of God that we're saved. But we do see when we read in Matthew 25, verses 35 and 36, that works do count. And this truth is reinfer- reinforced in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul tells us, for we, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Believers will not be standing in judgment for our sins because our sins have already been judged at the cross, but we will all have to give an account for what we do. In Matthew 25, in verses 35 and 36, and also 42 and 43, Jesus praises those that he separated, those on the right for ministering to him and those on the left he rebukes them and he says that we either we did meet the needs of 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 the least of these my brothers and those on the the left he said you did not meet the the needs of the least of these now exactly what jesus means by the least of these my brothers or the least of these at all there there's debate no no one's really sure exactly what he meant and i don't have time to go through the various arguments it's really not that important to this particular subject but what is important is regardless of who the least of these is what is beyond debate is the truth that people who haven't accepted christ can't serve from a christian orientation it's safe to say that the thousands the the, well the millions of people who have died without christ at some point ministered to somebody They gave food to the hungry. They gave something to drink to people that were thirsty. They did benevolent things. And among the people that they served were probably Christians as well. But Jesus tells us in John 15, 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing, meaning outside of Christ, we are incapable of exalting him. We are incapable of serving him. So people that are without Christ don't glorify him. They can't glorify him because they are without Christ. So their deeds are like Paul says, like rubbish. Now, as it pertains to us believers, these verses remind us that there are no wasted activities. What we say, what we think, what we do either points to Christ or points away from him. So even some relatively, from a worldly perspective, insignificant things that we do, somebody's thirsty, we give them a bottle of water. Somebody needs help, we help them. We give someone a a kind word. We call another believer and encourage them in, in their walk. These things, maybe to us, seem small. But to the big picture of the Lord, they merge into the eternal story of Christ. So as a result of that, we should be inspired to see even the smallest things that we think, the smallest things that we say, and the smallest things that we do from an eternal perspective. And then from there, be even more inspired to behave in only godly ways with godly intentions. And then finally, we should be motivated to fulfill our purpose. And our greatest purpose is to exalt God. It's to glorify God. It's to do it on on earth, just as it's continually done in heaven. And we know that it's continually done in heaven because the Bible tells us so. In Isaiah. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And in Revelations 4, 8, John tells us the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Okay, quick sidebar. So earlier I selected a a portion in Revelation that said there is no night. And then here we see that Paul says, I'm sorry, that John says that God is worshipped day and night. There's no night in heaven. What John is saying that, remember, he's writing this to time-oriented humans. So he's emphasizing that if there was a clock in heaven, I'm sure there isn't a clock in heaven. He said if there was one, every minute would be filled with praises and glorification of the Lord. So what we see here is two, are two men that show us that the praises of God go on forever in, in heaven without ceasing. And one day we are going to be with the heavenly host folks physically next to them. I don't know what it's going to stand, what it's going to be like to stand next to an angel with six wings and eyes all around, or, or they're going to be flying above us or what it's going to be magnificent no matter what, but we will all be around the throne of God, worshiping him and praising him forever. So I'm going to use this as a segue to kind of bring this to a close. I want to remind believers that the only way to worship God isn't through singing. It's through how we live our lives. When we we speak, when we think and act in godly ways, it, it demonstrates to the world, it encourages us and other believers that our hearts are devoted to something bigger than what we're dealing with right now. That our devotion is more towards the eternal God than it is even something good like our families or our jobs. Or when, we ha- when we handle disagreements, our focus is on glorifying God, not being right, not winning this argument. And if our hearts are focused on, on the eternal God and his qualities, we're going to be better family members. We're going to be better spouses. We're going to be better employees. We're going to handle everybody with grace. So part of forever is right now. So by living life with with this kind of focus, with an eternal focus, we're joining heaven's residents in their continual praise of God. We get the opportunity, folks, right now to indulge in worshiping the Lord just like we're going to do forever in heaven. And the thing about it is we're going to do it for the rest of eternity, and it will never, ever get old. And before we pray, I want to reach out to, to anybody, again, listening who hasn't accepted Christ. If there's anything about this message that calls you to be fearful, fearful based on the way I defined it earlier, the way the Bible defines it, you're becoming, you're more knowledgeable of who God is and who you are. you, You become more knowledgeable of the fact that you need Christ. Folks, that's the Holy Spirit's talking right now. Don't ignore him. Don't ignore him. There's not a big process that you have to do. There's not special words that you have to say. All you have to do is acknowledge that you are a sinner. And guess what? You're not surprising him. He knows already. Just confess your sins. And no matter what it is that you did, no matter how bad you think it is or how bad other people tell you that it is, the answer is yes, God will forgive you. And he tells us in his word that he will separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That is far. And then lastly, just accept them into your life. Ask him to come into your heart and to lead you. Now, if, I, I recommend that you don't wait one minute to, doing, to do that. Now, I will tell you, though, that when you do do that, you're probably going to feel the same way. It's not like all of a sudden you're going to start floating or anything. You're, you're going to feel the same way. But at that moment, God's going to start working in you. Really, God started working in you before that because that's why you're doing this in this moment right now anyway. But I will ask you to do one more thing once you do this. And that's to tell another believer that you did do this. I know you know another believer. Find that believer. Let them know that you confessed your sins and you've given your heart to the Lord. And God will take you from there. Tonight, the Lord can change your destiny. Where do you choose to spend the rest of eternity? Us believers are going to spend eternity with the eternal God. I hope you join us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are so far beyond our ability to to comprehend you fully. But you know every single thing about us and you, you, you love us anyway. And for that, we thank you. We also thank you for graciously allowing us to learn more about your qualities. And Father, we are awed by them. And we are amazed that considering all that you are and all that we aren't, you desire a relationship with us. Father, you pursue us for this relationship. You almighty, eternal God, pursue us. We thank you, Father. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be more focused on your eternal holiness and your perfect will more than we are anything else, God. Be the priority of our lives, God. Help us to live a life that testifies that you are our Father and we are your children. And Father, if there's anyone out there who hasn't accepted you, Father, don't leave them alone. Keep working in their heart that they would bow down before you and confess that you are Lord, Father. In Jesus' holy, precious name we pray. Thank you. All right, everybody, thank you. And please be sure to join us on the live stream on Sunday at 10 o'clock. Be well, be safe.